It was the worst aviation accident ever. 583 fatalities. We're going to be talking, Chrissy and I, about Tenerife. Hello and welcome to the Taking Off podcast. It's Dan Milliken. I'm here with who? Chrissy Wong. And I think it's, is it Tenerife? I knew you were going to say that. I, I knew you were going to say that right away. And the thing is, I researched this just minutes ago, um, talking to somebody from Madrid. Also uh, pulled it up on some Europeans' uh, YouTube to find out what they were saying. And it is 100% Tenerife. That's how they say it. Tenerife. Now, okay. I, but now, if you not, say it like that, you have to say it with an accent. Yes, yes, I, I agree. So the American, and, and by the way, I've mentioned this before in a video, and I got comments. No, you pronounced it wrong. But no, it's and it's not Tenerife. It's, it, it's almost like a throwaway. Tenerife is how I heard the uh, Spanish person saying it. Well, just for the sake of simplicity, because I am not a Spaniard and I'm terrible at like pronouncing things, I'm probably just going to say Tenerife. I hope. I think that's fine. For that. I think that that's fine because okay. you say Tenerife and the purists will get mad at you. I'll say Tenerife and the Americans will get mad at me. Now, as soon as, I, as, soon as I started Nobody's this, happy. Yeah, exactly. And as soon as I started this podcast, there is some kind of major vacuum cleaner right outside my window. I don't know what they're doing on the outside of this building. I don't know if you can hear it or not, but hopefully not. But regardless, this I is a podcast. But I also don't have the super speaker. This is a podcast. This is not our normal video. I might put some pictures up, but that's all we're going to see. Okay, Christy, March 27th, 1977. I'll set the stage a little bit. Um, in accidents, air, aviation accidents, we always talk about the that it's a chain and that if any link in the chain got broken, the accident might have could have been avoided. And that is so true here. But with all the links in the chain, it still boils down to one man. And we'll get to that in a second. But to set the beginning chains, the links, the beginning links in the chain. So in 1977, the Canary Islands were ruled by Spain, and they're just off the Morocco coast. There was uh, uh, somebody from the Canaries that was living in Algiers and was had created an organization to try to get the Canary Islands to be independent or independently ruled. This guy never had more than 100 members, by the way, and he got a couple of guys to, to to basically put a small bomb in the flower shop on the main big airport in the Canary Islands on Grand Canary and the um, Los Rodeos Airport. And I'm sorry, Los Palmas Airport. And the bomb went off. He Somebody called giving them 15-minute warning, and nobody was killed and I've seen, read different reports that four people were injured or eight people were injured. But when they called and said a bomb was going to go off in 15 minutes, they actually said bombs or they said two bombs. And so the uh, airport authorities shut down the airport just as several big international flights were coming in and others, including the Pan Am flight, Pan Am 1736 from New York 
as well as KLM 4805 from Amsterdam, Canary Islands being a very big tourist attraction. And so the both pilots of the 747s, the Pan Am Clipper and the KLM, requested to hold. Both were denied that after a little bit and were sent to an alternate airport at Tenerife and the Los Rodeos Airport, which was the main airport over there, but still not as big. They had almost finished a new airport on Tenerife that actually had ground radar. But again, another link in the chain, that airport wasn't ready. So they were, they were all, all the planes that were diverted from Las Palmas were sent over to Tenerife for, you know, now both 747s had plenty of fuel to hold for a couple of hours. And at the end of the, at the end of it all, it was only about a two hour wait on the ground at Tenerife. So with that, I've set the stage. What do you think, Christy? Have I got anything wrong, first of all? Um, I don't think you've necessarily got anything wrong. The The problem with this situation is that there is a law hot to unpack. You mentioned several links in the chain. And, yeah, it, like going back and looking through and studying, it's like if one of those things had not happened, we would not be – we would not be talking about this. No, we we would wouldn't. be talking about it as a disaster that was averted or maybe it just didn't even happen. Yeah, we but wouldn't have talked about it at all because we things. wouldn't have known, yeah. Right, exactly. So, yeah, so, of course, that first link is that Tenerife was not the destination airport for either of these flights. Um, and for the reasons, obviously, you just discussed. The planes, you know, they wanted to hold. They were told no. ATC was in a frenzy. They were like, we don't know how long Las Palmas is going to be closed for. Send them away. So even though both of the 747s requested holding, they were just immediately denied. Just go to Los Rodeos. They're like, okay, whatever. Los Rodeos, um, really important to talk about the location of Los Rodeos because it plays an important factor. It is located at the northern tip of uh, the Tenerife Island, which is a volcanic island. I say volcanic, meaning it's like the Hawaiian Islands. It was created over millions of years from volcanoes. So you've got that like rocky, mountainous, volcanic. It, I mean, it's a beautiful island. I personally would love to visit because it just sounds amazing. But because of its location at the north end of the airport, where, or I mean, excuse me, at the north end of the island it has a predisposition of thick fog you get that um the, the air that rushes in from the atlantic and they um you know you just get the fog right there with the mountains um, right. in and fact, stuff that they, would just flow they, in and within minutes it was totally clear when those guys landed within two hours it was totally fogged in exactly in fact they had recently within recent years put an ILS system in uh, to that airport, even though it was just a quote-unquote regional airport, because of the fog. They wanted to make sure airplanes could still get in. And here's another, so, here's another chain that's not often talked about when talking about Tenerife, and that is the, the Dutch legislation that was recently passed right before this accident. Um, there wasn't much regulation as far as crew schedule, but the Netherlands had just passed sweeping reform 
on the crews having a very, very tight schedule and that they couldn't, you know, overwork them, right? So that was actually one of the things that really affected the captain of the of the Dutch airplane, Jakob Van Zanten. And we're going to mention Van Zanten quite a bit. And he was the, everybody knows this, that, that has looked into this. He was the face of KLM, literally. He was used for their promotion pictures and everything else. He was the senior most captain at KLM. He trained everybody, spent a lot of time in the flight sims, probably not as many hours actually in the cockpit as maybe some of the others, but he was the guy at KLM, and I think he knew it. And one of the things that was discussed... Oh, he knew it. Oh, yeah. And one of the things discussed on the way over was this new legislation and how... Actually, not on the way over. It was actually discussed on the ground. It was still on the cockpit voice recorder from right before they taxied and took off. They were talking about this, and Van Zatten was a little bit worried that if if they flew over to back over to Las Palmas that they would not be able to make the trip back to Amsterdam before he'd have to overnight in Las Palmas. And he thought his wife would freak out hearing about a bomb, blah, blah, blah. And so what he decided to do sitting on the ground in Tenerife was to go ahead and fill up the tanks so that he wouldn't have to do that in Las Palmas. They could turn immediately and get back up to Amsterdam making the deadline. So that was a big, big, big chain because now instead of just having – you know, two hours of fuel, which on a 747 really isn't that much. Now he had full tanks of jet fuel all over. Yeah. Um, and of course, um, what that did, that did a couple of things as well, is it delayed their departure by about That's 30 right. minutes or so. Yeah, it So did. if he had, yeah, and, and here's the thing about Van Zanten, okay? He was, how do I say this nicely? He was intense. Yes. He he was an he just was one of those personalities that he had the status. Like he said he like he knew it, but people like genuinely feared him, and his crew members would speak up, but he would shoot them down. Yes. he kind of had that like god complex. So I know that the crew members actually said, "Hey, you know what? It's actually it would be better for us to fuel in Las Palmas." Because the fuel is cheaper and this and that. And Van Zanten just shut them down. No questions asked. No, we fuel now because we fuel now that we don't have to wait and get fuel in Las Palmas. Plus, there's probably going to be other aircraft in Las Palmas that want to fuel. So, you know what? We fuel now. He he had the definition of get their itis. He figured that they were going to wind up getting stuck in Las Palmas if he didn't act right then and there. And because of that... He was go, 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 and didn't really think, you know, much about the consequences of what he was saying and doing. He was very easily agitated. And I don't know if that was him on just a normal day-to-day basis or if the It sounds like it was him on a day. normal day-to-day basis. However, it was amplified by the all the different 
things going on. And it's a great lesson for me as a pilot to, you know, I can get frustrated with, uh, you know, getting, you know, maybe I'm late getting to the airport because of I got behind a train, you know, heading the Hicks airfield. And then you get frustrated there. And now you're getting behind the clock and you're, you, you let these things stress and you let these things impact decisions rather than, okay, take a deep breath. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Let's just take our time. It was a good lesson for me. Exactly. Well, funny enough, um, and we'll kind of talk about the consequences and and the changes and the legacy of this accident later. But one of the things that um, we are often asked during airline interviews now is, hey, you've got a captain that wants to go and you see an issue with leaving, whether it's frost on the wings or you don't think that you got proper clearance to cross the taxiway or proper clearance to take off, you know, what do you do? That is an actual interview question right. that we are given. Well, now. and at the so, end of this, we'll, we'll talk about the, the, the impact of this accident on the aviation industry. Cause that's one. And there's, there's quite a bit and, and I'll let you get into that in a minute. Um, one thing too, is that with his decision, so you know, they they fly to Las Palmas originally. They get put in holds right there by the airport and then immediately told to divert to Los Rodeos on Tenerife. And they land, and they don't know exactly how long, but they think the airport's going to be open fairly quickly. And the, the KLM actually lets their passengers off into the terminal. Pan Am requests the same, but they're denied because there's not enough room. So the so the uh, Pan Am airplane is actually very loose. The people are 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 feeling good. It's all vacation. It's mostly elderly people who are going to be uh, going on a cruise. And the captain of the uh, Captain Victor Grubb of the Pan Am Clipper actually invites people up to the cockpit and shows them and that kind of stuff, which then you contrast that to the KLM deck where you've got this incredibly authoritative, uh, authoritarian um, dictating exactly what's going to happen. And, and you've got an idea, well, shut up. This is the way it's going to be. And it was two totally different things. So then the captain, you know, Van Zanten decides to refuel. And within minutes, they get the all clear from Las Palmas. So now the the Pan Am can take off, right? Well, the way the 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 Dutch KLM was parked, there wasn't quite enough room for the Pan Am to get by. So he had to wait and they just started taking on that fuel. So the so Grubb, the captain of the of Pan Am, calls the KLM and Van Zanten tells him, Oh, it's still gonna be another twenty minutes. And so Grubb actually sends his FO, his first officer and the engineer, outside the plane. They deplane and go look and measure and see if they think they can get by the the KLM, and they cannot. And there's another chain. They're short by only twelve feet. Wow. I, I actually read that. Yeah, it was a it was a matter of twelve feet. Here's another interesting thing too that delayed the KLM even more. Um, when they let the passengers off, they were trying to get the passengers back on. Well, two children from the KLM plane had gone missing. They had wandered off and that delayed them by a few minutes as well, because they had to go and like find this family, um, the parents that were looking for these kids 
And um, so that actually had consequences as well. In fact, in later interviews, it was like one of the gate agents, um, he, he came forward and said, yeah, he said that he had lingering guilt because he had found that family and, and shuffled them back on the airplane and effectively shuffled death. them onto yeah. their death. Well, here's, so 248 passengers on the KLM, there were actually 249 that arrived. Did you know that? I did know that. Rubina. Yeah. Rubina Van, something. oh gosh, what was yeah. her last name? Van it's very Dutch. or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's very Dutch. So her boyfriend. Rubina Van, Van Landshot, Land, Van Landshot, sorry. And her boyfriend was on Tenerife, and she requested to remain behind, and it was granted. So she was in a car with her boyfriend driving away from the airport when all this happened. Yeah, she actually, I believe she lived there. And so she was like, either she lived there or her boyfriend lived there. Her boyfriend did. That was her, yeah, that was her final destination anyway. So she was like, well, instead of going to Las Palmas, staying the night and then flying back here, I mean, like, I'm literally right here. So I'm Yeah, that would never happen today. Right. And she had two airplanes, or I mean, two airplanes, oh my gosh, two friends on the airplane that agreed to get her luggage or, you know, that day or whatever. And then she would just pick it up from them later. Yeah, that did happen. Yeah, that did not happen, unfortunately. That's all setting the stage. So now the Pan Am Clipper has to wait for the KLM to refuel. The KLM gets to go first and is given, by the tower at Tenerife, is given clearance to begin taxing. And what's interesting, I found— But the problem— I was going to say the problem is that the fog had started to roll in. Oh, at right, that time right, right. Now. Yeah. So the so and it was worsening, minute by minute. So they were given. Oh, yeah. They were given taxi release by the tower, as soon as they were, and they were told to taxi, uh, back taxi up the runway, and all the way to the end, and then do a three sixty. Actually, first they were told to to exit um, Charlie three, but. Uh, they were unclear. The the tower was, uh, or actually the approach, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, it was really hard to understand the accent between first and third. And so they're saying first exit and third exit, and they weren't sure if they're, did you say first exit? Or just, so there was a lot of confusion going on, even with the KLM. So the, um, but the third, the third exit didn't make sense for them. Well, neither did the first. It was only chart. the fourth. Right. Yeah. And, and we'll get to that with the Pan Am. But what I thought was interesting is as soon as, as soon as the planes were put on the runway, they were turned over from tower to approach control, which I found interesting. And it was the approach control that was having the first third confusion. And I don't know why he didn't say exit Charlie one, exit Charlie three, exit Charlie four. He was saying exit first exit third egg that that's more confusing and of course that was one of the impacts was the uh the communication standardization was came out of Tenerife so the Dutch plane is sent all the way to the end of the runway and now the Pan Am flight is given taxi permission right they want the Pan Am to taxi basically behind the KLM they want KLM to hold in position while Pan Am taxis down takes that same exit basically and then lines up because that'll save them a lot of time basically if they have two these two jumbos taxiing basically at the same time once pan am is off the runway and they can't see a thing like when i say they can't see a thing like tower cannot see them they cannot see the other airplanes that like they can barely see a few feet in front of them so they're taxiing at like three miles an hour 
Like it's really, really, really slow. Um, with that is that like neither of those 747s could see each other so when Van Benton does the 180 at the end of the runway and is sitting there he goes to throttle up and the first officer is like hey we didn't get clearance yet and so all that does is just agitate Van Zanten in the KLM plane even more he shoves the throttles down to idle he's like yes I know that just go ahead and get clearance for me then just call them now then you know yeah. and so they're like, I mean, the whole thing is Van Vinton's like, go, 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 go. He's not even thinking about the other airplane at this point. Well, even when he's told to think about the other airplane, he's not thinking about the other airplane. And, and there's confusion on the clearance. Are you, uh, you know, they were given route clearance and Van Zanten's like, no, we've been given clear to take off. I mean, there was a lot of misunderstandings and unclear communication going on and in probably one of the biggest chains uh, links in this chain was when pan am is listening to all this and they reach out saying when they hear van zatten getting you know all gung-ho and uh they reach out hey you guys know we're still on the runway at the same time regional approach is saying something to the dutch saying hey don't take off and they walk on each other and and Van Zanten hears neither. Right. All he heard was, okay. was the controller saying, okay, but the controller was saying, okay, you're not clear to take, off, to you take off. Yeah. So, uh, I, like, here's the thing with that is there was a, there was a miscommunication because of the garbled transmission, but at the end of the day, Stanton's interpretation, his own personal interpretation, because even his crew said, I don't think we've been cleared to take off. I th and like, Even the I flight think the engineer the, spoke up. Yeah. Right. Yep. The flight engineer was like, hey, is that Pan Am off the runway yet? Like, I don't think he's off the runway and yet. And the captain's, yes. He's like, oh, yes. Like, nope. Again, he doesn't even care. I'm, you know, and so it to me, I don't think really it was necessarily a miscommunication or whatever because, like, the other flight crew knew very obvious on the CDR. They knew what was going on, and they were along for the ride at that point because Van Zanten was the, you know, yeah, because he was a bully. The, because the, well, not only that, that was, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the environment in the cockpit. The captain was God, and you don't question God. And, and, and so, that, that was across the industry, wasn't it? And no. Okay. So. And by the way, Christy, your phone, your phone's kind of cutting in and out. So I don't know what's going on, but just so you know. Oh, okay. That's weird. I'm like just sitting here. Um, okay. So yes and no, because you can definitely see a vast difference in the flight deck crew environment on the Pan Am airplane. Things were lighthearted. They were trying to keep the tension down. They were trying to keep relaxed they were trying to yeah exactly even in the super high stress environment the captain of the pan am in no way shape or form bullied his flight crew he was like hey let's why don't we try this and i mean they were they were talking back and forth about it meanwhile captain van Zanten was very bullish very like we do this my way you have no say so but i there have been other accidents you know, couldn't were contributing factors to you know the captain being a bully and whatnot. 
um, before the advent of what we consider modern day CRM or crew resource management. I can't remember the actual airline, but I know that there was an Asian airline where the captain, basically the first officer uh, was afraid to speak up because, you know, the captain, the captain was God basically. And you don't say anything. If the captain says it's okay to go on this closed runway, well, then I guess we go on the closed runway. You just don't speak up. First officer didn't speak up and therefore they wound up crashing and dying. Well, let's, um, kind of skip ahead then for a minute because you, you mentioned um, Q, Q, uh, crew resource management. That was a big thing CRM. that came out of this specific accident. So what is that? Yes. So crew resource management is basically, it provides an environment so that all crew members have a say in what happens versus the, the captain authority. And I go back to the, the HR questions during the interview for the airlines now when they ask us, Hey, what do you do? You know, you, you go outside, you know, you're up North. It's a cool April morning. There's frost on the wings. The airline has a no frost policy. What do you do if the captain's like, yeah, I know it'll be fine. We'll be fine. Let's just go. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, we basically what they want you to know as a first officer candidate is that you have the authority to speak up, whether it's, you speak up and tell the captain if the captain still brushes you off. You contact, you know, the pilot help desk or the chief pilot. You know, you do what you need to do to ensure the safety of yourself, the plane, and the passengers. You know, versus before the captain had the full, I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, the captain has the final authority. But if you feel like it's a safety issue, especially in a situation like that, you need to have the courage and know that you have the authority to speak up. Well, let me ask you this, um, because I, you know, I'm not in that world and you are. What would happen if an FO did, and let's take that same exact situation. There's frost on the wings. The FO, the captain wants to take off. The FO's like, well, no, we got this. The captain says, we're going to do it anyway. Are you saying that the FO could like jump on his iPad or whatever and reach out to the chief pilot right then and lodge a complaint as they're taxing down. I mean, how does that work? No, I mean, at that basically it gives you the authority to speak up and say, Hey captain, I really think we should get defrosted before we take off. Okay. So then the captain says, no, we're going to be fine. Let's go. Then what? Um, well then you have, yeah, you jump on your iPad, you go to the, um, or the flight operations manual, and you pull up where it says in the FOM, hey, it says here that if there's frost on the wings, we need to get defrosted. We need to we need to call the de-ice truck and have them come over. If the captain still gets, you know, persnickety with you at that point, the first officer has the authority and the, the courage to say, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm going to have to, you know, call somebody if you're insisting that we go. And at that point, if the captain still escalates it, there are other things you can do. You can say, I don't feel safe on this flight. You basically call out from working the flight. Now the flight can't go at all. And you just deal with the consequences later, in which case you you plead your case to the chief pilot or the okay. you know safety manager or whoever. Okay. Now, what if, let's say there was a little bit of sparkle on the wings, but it really wasn't frost and the captain knew that, but the FO's being... I guess a uh, FO version of a Karen, 
and they escalate it. And what if the chief pilot says there was not a problem with this? What happens to that brave, courageous FO Karen? I mean, at that point, it's a learning lesson for the FO, but <laughs> yeah. it's no way for all the other the pilots thing, that fly with the FO. But here's the thing is I'd rather reap the consequences as a first officer and being wrong in that situation versus being an NTSB report because I didn't have the courage to speak up. Yeah. I'm at least alive to plead my case. Worst case scenario at that point, the FO gets sent to like training or something right. or just some, some sort of remedial the training. figuratively but, Siberia of, of aviation, right? Right, exactly. Worst case scenario in this situation in Tenerife is that You know, the, the first officer, I mean, if I were the first officer in that case, and I knew that that Pan Am or had a very good inkling that the Pan Am was still on the runway, I would have reached over and slapped my hands down on the throttle so freaking fast. And if the, and you know what? Let the captain get mad at me. Let him yell at me. Let him scream at me. My feet are on the brakes. The throttles are down to idle. He's like, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. I get on the radio. Pan Am, are you still on the runway? Pan Am says, affirmative, still on the runway. I look at the captain and say, sir. Pan Am is still on the runway. Let him get snarky with me. Let him get whatever. But you know what? I'm alive at that point. Right. They didn't do that. No, they didn't. The authority to do something like that. So literally, they were just like, God, please let us get off the runway in time. But because of all those links in the chain, all the factors, the extra fuel, they were super heavy now, et cetera. They might have been able to take off. Had they not fueled, yeah. They might have actually been been able. It might have been able to skirt over the top of that Pan Am. It would have been scary. Pan Am would have been like, what the what? You know, but um, but because yeah. they were so heavy, they had, they had no chance. They almost they almost cleared. So let's, let's now talk about the accident sequence. So um, Pan Am, so uh, Captain Grubb sees the lights of the Pan Am and thinks that it's sitting still because the lights are coming right at you. They're not moving. Then it, it hits him. Oh, my gosh. The, the guy is coming towards us. He's, you know, and so both the FO and the captain, the FO calls out, you know, get off, get off, get off. And Pan Am immediately uses the tiller full. They throttle up. They're going 20 knots as fast as they can at that point to get off the runway from three knots to 20 and just immediate into the grass, just left turn. And, you know, now Van Zanten sees the Pan Am. They're at V1. So he just he uh, yells a Dutch expletive. He it's the last thing that's heard, and he yanks the yoke back. The Dutch seven forty seven gets airborne. The further right engine collides with the first class section of the Pan Am, that big bulge on the seven forty seven, and the gear makes contact with the top of the Pan Am. And they continue down another 100, 150 meters and then impact the runway with no gear and immediately explosion, fire, and all 300, I'm sorry, 248 people on the KLM immediately die. In the meantime, the Pan Am is a burning wreck as well. Um, However, the people up front, including the flight deck, uh, survive. So there were a few people that survived, few being like, I think, a, I forgot to get that number, like, was it nine, 90 or something? 
but in all, there was a total of 583 fatalities with these two 747s. I think 61 people survived. That sounds And they right. were all from the Pan Am. And, um, I mean, Robina was considered, like, the quote-unquote only survivor of KLM, but that's because she wasn't on the KLM. She wasn't on it, right. But every single person exactly, that was but- on that KLM died. Yeah, and yeah, so... I mean, there, and extra fuel on board absolutely sealed their fate because the thing literally burst into a ball of flame. Yeah, and had... There the, was just absolutely no surviving it. Had the fuel been off, there's a good chance they could have cleared the Pan Am. So, okay. But, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, um, and the thing is, is that the fog was so thick that the controllers didn't even know that the Pan Am was also involved they thought that the klm they didn't realize what had happened they thought maybe the klm went off the runway or did whatever so they sent out the fire trucks to the to the klm i believe it was the klm they sent it to first but they they didn't realize that the other was out there and involved as well when they found out the controllers were basically despondent yeah they were faced with something that nobody had ever faced before the crash of two passenger-laden 747s. Yeah. So And the, the KLM was burning so intensely. I did read this. It took, like, hours for them to put out the flames. Yeah. It was just absolutely crazy. But it also goes to show you how thick that fog was, because even the massive, like, heat and fire and everything else did not dissipate that fog at all. Yeah. Absolutely horrible, absolutely tragic. Um, besides... CRM, Crew Resource Management, what else um, from this crash made an impact into the way 121 operations are done today? Standard AC, uh, ATC transmissions became a big thing. Yep. You know, it used to be that you could just say Roger or copy that or Wilco. And, you know, sometimes people still do that. But um, if it's if it's uh, something that risk situation you can get away with Roger or, or something of that nature but now they standardize ATC missions they also re-emphasize um, English as the standard language of aviation because the controllers were so hard to like understand and the the um, the flight, you know, various flight crews and stuff. Really and truly, I think it was the Pan Am that was the most proficient in English. Um, in fact, I think this on the CVR, they were, tra- um, you know, Captain Van Zanten and his crew, they were transmitting in, in English, but I think in the flight deck, they were actually speaking in Dutch. Is if it pretty I standard that, that on the flight deck of a non English? originating flight that they speak English even on the flight deck I thought it was just on radio communications no I mean I, I well and that's the thing but they were like the controllers I think they didn't have a lot of practice speaking English. no I mean and first I and third you couldn't figure yeah you couldn't understand which one they were saying I, yeah exactly I I just know that English speaking English in the aviation realm um, became even more emphasized that was already the rule but they just re-emphasized that. Um, I know that for sure, you know, we talked about the the CRM. Um, I think they wound up building another airport on Tenerife on the south end 
that wasn't so susceptible to that kind of fog well, as well. Well, that airport was almost complete at this time of this of this accident, and it had ground radar at that gotcha. airport. Yeah, so gotcha. they just okay. it just hadn't opened yet. Okay, I didn't realize it was under so, construction. An, yeah, it was another chain or another link in the chain. So. Yeah, and well, and the other thing too is, um, I know this kind of led the way. I I know they talked about ground radar and and stuff like that, but really importantly for us as pilots in the flight deck, we get iPads with GPS tracking on it, so we can literally just like for flight, right? Except it's the um like the company version effectively of for flight. Um, it'll actually tell you where you are at the runway and then we have other there is other apps that like as ga pilots i know we could use too um like flight radar 24 we could pull up flight radar 24 and say oh okay well there's dan and lola down at the end of the runway you know right. not that we would ever do that out of hicks in the fog or whatever but we have a lot more technological tools available and i think a lot of it was born out of this accident and accidents like it. Yeah. Hey, what do we do, you know, to, to better see? In fact, we have low visibility taxi procedures in place that we have to practice for during um, check rides and recurrence and stuff like that. Probably all because of Tenerife. So, okay, last, last thoughts. I've got some, but I'll let you go first. So they said that the official cause of the accident was Captain Van Zanten's attempt to take off without a proper clearance. And there were certainly a lot of links in that chain that led up to them being in position for that to happen. But in my opinion, at the end of the day, it was Captain Van Zanten's hazardous attitudes which caused this accident. There were factors that contributed to it. You know, the diversions, the fog, the misunderstandings, the radio comms. You know, all, all that stuff, right? But if Captain Van Zanten had slowed his role and not been such a jerk, this terrible accident would not have happened. If he had just sat on that runway for, you know, one more minute, one more minute, two more minutes, that would have been the difference. Between 583 people losing their life. Exactly, exactly, including Captain Van Zanten. I find it highly ironic, too, that the KLM first response to the accident oh, yeah. was Somebody call Captain Van Zanten. He needs to get on scene, blah, blah, blah. Not realizing that it was that captain that caused this whole thing. Well, and they they fought uh, when when it came out that, you know, the, the cause of this accident was, you know, Captain Van Zanten. The KLM fought back for quite a while before they finally admitted, yes, okay, it was his fault. We'll, we'll pay the survivor. You know, the uh, Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we, you know, I mean, as humans, right? Because companies are just made up of populations of people. Why is there a propensity for us to forego taking responsibility or having defensive situations like this? Why couldn't they have looked at it and gone, oh, man, he messed up. You know, we need to, fit, we need to fix this. Like, this is a problem, well, maybe clearly. Instead, they, think, they well, fought we... against it. Maybe they look at it and go, yeah, we're clearly in the wrong, but if we fight it, maybe we won't have to pay as much. Maybe there's some of that going on. I don't know, but it's horrible. No. And, and I, if the world would take responsibility for stuff, that would be really different. 
All right, so here's yeah, dude. I don't know if you, I don't know if you watched the um, MH370 documentary, but they talked about that too. Like, I mean, that's a completely separate topic, but just the Malaysian government not wanting to take responsibility oh, for right. certain things. Yeah, so that's a that's a different topic for. Well, a that's because day, but, it was aliens, yeah. but yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Um, True. My big takeaway is um, it reminds me on a micro scale of of two situations, one that was mine and then one that was a tragedy that happened here in North Texas a couple of years ago. And I'll start with the one in North Texas. So there was a, a twin engine plane that took off with a captain that had a very similar attitude as Van Zanten. And so it was just a, a small King Air with eight people on board, a family and some family friends. And the captain just wanted somebody to sit in the right seat who would just shut up and let him fly. And he made that clear. And when he had trouble on takeoff because of his hazardous attitude, he didn't get, he wasn't, you know, the, the FO wasn't able to really help him and, or didn't choose to because he'd been shut down so much. So, um, and, and it resulted in the death of those people because of that hazardous attitude. Then I think about a situation with mine so I, and being safe, you know, my whole thing, superior judgment, Trump's superior skills, I say that slogan more to remind myself than, than others. And there was a time I was in Lola just not even a year ago, but because I had superior judgment, I brought along another pilot to help me, a young guy, very good pilot. And uh, he, had, he had been landing Lola better, better than just about anybody else who's flown Lola. And he's doing great. He was very uh, conscientious and everything else. And I was trying to get back to AirVenture because we had to leave AirVenture in the middle of the show to go to something. And I took him along to help me. And we had a, uh, a problem with the alternator and we at night. And we put down it at uh, the biggest, nearest airport. And I'm sitting here trying to restart the alternator. The belt looks good. And maybe if I try to tighten the belt, you know, whatever, let's start it again, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there after failed attempt after failed attempt. And the young kid looks at me and in his Southern accent says, well, Dan, seems to me you just got some get there itis. And dang it, he was yeah. absolutely right. <laughs> and it stung. But you know what? He was right. So at that moment... I pulled my phone out and I got us a hotel room or rooms and said, we'll deal with this tomorrow. We're not going to make the show. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I could have very easily been authoritarian and said, shut up, get in the plane, let's go. Um, but no, that was, that would have been the wrong call. And uh, so anyway, that's my takeaways on this horrible, horrible accident. Yeah, it gets, get their itis is a real thing. We've all experienced it. As an airline pilot, I've been in situations. Man, there it was funny. There was a situation. I picked up a turn. Um, this was several months ago. Picked up a turn. We were flying down to Mexico and back. And I decided, you know, it's just a turn. We'll be back. So I just took a day bag with me. And that's number one right there. Is you, I just jinxed myself, you know, right. because I just took a day bag. Um, well, it turns out that we wound up having an issue and we were going to wind up getting like stuck in Mexico because we, we were going to time out because of this issue. If we didn't get, and I mean, dispatch was literally sending us messages through our ACARs 
if we're not off the ground in 20 minutes, you know, we're going to get stuck. They're going to have to cancel the flight. And then it was like, oh my gosh, can we please like go, 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 go so that we don't get stuck here, you know? And at the end of the day, I mean, the worst that would have happened is, yeah, we would have gotten stuck and we would have had to get a hotel and we wouldn't have gone back till the next day, et cetera. And that, that would have sucked, but, you know, we'd be alive. The issue that we had was not a safety issue fortunately it was just a delay because of the ground crew at the airport we were at but either way i mean those things do happen we we have very strict um time constraints on us as pilots we can extend those time constraints a little bit but the faa is very 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 strict about making sure that we are like within those time constraints fortunately they resolved the issue and we were able to get out on time for that particular, I, I've never taken a day bag again, though, even just the turn, <laughs> right. I, I just take the whole shebang. Yeah. But, um, Oh, I lost you again. Okay. No, I just said, I said, it yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you guys for listening. Um, if you're watching it on YouTube or listening on YouTube, um, that's the podcast part of YouTube. I'll throw a picture or two up, but there's not a moving video. And, uh, we also have it on, all the all the podcast methods you use, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, whatever. So thanks for, for listening to our podcast, the Taking Off Podcast. And you guys stay safe. And remember, superior judgment does indeed trump superior skills. Take care. <laughs>